My name is Nick. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If you are visiting, love to get to know you, love to meet you. Um, but I'll be getting us into God's Word. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 to 37 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love for everyone in this church to have a Bible in their lap and a Bible on their shelf at home. So uh, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. And if you don't own one, feel free to keep it. But Luke chapter 10 is where we'll be. And then verses 25 to 37. I'll I'll read that, pray, and we will uh, dive in. Seems like the weather's warming up for you guys for Memorial Day, right? Pretty good? You guys, you guys alive? You awake? You with me? Is it too hot? You guys sleepy? Don't be sleepy. We're about to get into God's Word. Okay, here we go. Here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? But Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three... got to love this. All of this was Jesus' answer to the question, Who is my neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and uh, do likewise. Let's pray. God, I pray that though perhaps at the front of our meeting here together this morning, there are some in this room, like the lawyer in our text, who are inclined to think well of themselves, like they are doing the the deal, the Christian thing. They are justified in their own eyes. Like David was saying, they go to church on Sundays and they watch their language and they are good, wholesome people, but 
God, I pray that by the end of this sermon, by the end of our time together in your word, all of us would be laid out desperate before the cross, aware that any righteousness, any good deeds, anything we have to offer is nothing compared to the deficit and the only one who can help us is you. I pray these things, Lord, because I know that's the sort of calculus from which neighbor love emerges. When a man sees himself as worthy of hell and yet is given the glories of heaven, he is unleashed to love neighbor like himself. I pray, God, you do that for us in this room. I pray, Jesus, that you would help me to communicate your will, your word, for your glory, the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so familiar parable, perhaps. Uh, nonetheless, uh, massive punch to it. So please don't uh, shut off your ears, go into sleep mode, um, or... or, or uh, uh, screensaver, stay with me, and let's see what, what Jesus has to say. Um, we have before us this morning, really, I would say, a strong case for the tragic impotence of the law and empty religion, on the one hand, and then a strong case for the surprising power, life-transforming power of grace and the gospel on the other hand. So on the one hand, we tend to think, I think, when when we are looking to refine or uh, reform a person, that giving him more laws, more rules, pressing in with a bit more, will serve to change them. And lead them into the ways of righteousness. I'm a parent. I uh, understand how that works. Well, behavior's going wrong. We need to look at the rule book and start adding some things. But what we come to find oftentimes is that those laws, those rules, don't actually serve to change the heart in any way. In fact, they just kind of make more sophisticated sinners of the individual. They just learn how to sin in a clean way, an acceptable way, how to hide certain things, but it's still the same junk inside. But then... On the other hand, we often fear that uh, for these same individuals that we're hoping to see reformed, refined, whatever it may be, that if we were to give them grace and mercy, well, they would feel free to go on sinning. They would feel free to, to go on even more in the, in the stuff that they're in. Because, well, grace, mercy, no consequences, hey, no big deal. But what we come to find is that when that person truly understands the grace of God, draws it into their heart by faith, gets it, it sets them free, you better believe it, only not to keep on sinning, but rather now to start loving for the first time, truly. So Jesus 
in our text is trying to make this move in the lawyer's life here. The move from legalism and self-concerned religion to grace and gospel to the only thing that can truly set this brother free to love God and neighbor. Uh, I'm going to begin just by making a few notes here and then I'll kind of lay an outline for you where we're heading this morning. But uh, first thing to make note, just quick background, is uh, when you see it there in verse 25 and Jesus is talking about a lawyer, I don't want you to picture like law and, or, or law and order here or uh, I don't even know if Judge Judy is still a thing, but uh, it's, we're not talking about a courtroom setting. We're not talking about one of those lawyers who would stand in a courtroom type setting like that. What we're talking about uh, when the text says lawyer here is, is, is one of these Jewish guys in Israel there that would have given himself to the study of the Mosaic law. In other words, especially the first five books of the Bible, but the whole Old Testament in general. These guys would have been experts in it. This man was a lawyer, which perhaps is why I'll show you this second observation here. Um, perhaps this is why it's the way that it is. I wonder if you noticed the posture in which this lawyer approaches Jesus. It's important to see, even though I'm aware when I read through something one time quickly, you often miss it. But I want you to see this because it kind of sets up the tone and trajectory for all that's going to follow. So this lawyer, what's his posture as he approaches Jesus here? Well, we're we're told in the second part of verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to what? Put him to the test. In other words, the basic sense here is that this man thinks he's all that, and he's come to see whether Jesus measures up. I am the lawyer. I'm the one who studies the Torah. I'm the one who knows the Old Testament in and out. What's all the fuss about you? Some peasant from Nazareth wandering the roads and these crowds are falling. What's that all about? How about I see what you're made of? How about I put you to the test? So make no mistake, uh, though this man comes, it seems, on the pretense of wanting to learn. He calls Jesus teacher here in the very beginning, if you noticed, after all. But though he comes with the pretense of wanting to learn, he has no intention of learning at all. In fact, he's attempting to test our Savior. He comes, you could say, under the soft cloak of humility, but with kind of the venom of pride. I mean, this same word is related to the words uh, for, for put to the test here, related to the word that, that, that Luke would use in Luke 4.2, talking about what the devil is doing with Jesus in the wilderness. There's not friendly exchange here. This is perhaps entrapment, perhaps tempting, certainly testing and prove yourself to my superior intellect before I'd be willing to put my stamp of approval on you and your ministry. That's kind of the feel that we get. And um, before we are uh, inclined to say, man, what a jerk. What we need to understand is often we can approach God with that same sort of heart, with that same sort of stuff going on. I wonder if you've ever said, hey, I mean, this is essentially how my Christian life began, really, or at least my seeking stage. What was I doing? I was standing with my arms crossed, 
I said, listen, I will believe you, God, Jesus. I will obey you if and when you prove yourself to me in one way or another. It's this horrible kind of uh, inversion of the world where man sets himself over God, subjects him to our own reasoning. We talk to God as if he were an inferior, as if he were on trial, as if he needs to answer to us, when in fact it's the exact opposite. I couldn't help but think of Job on this point. You remember that? How the whole thing, it seems like God is on trial. What are you doing to me, God? And then God finally talks and he goes, who are you? Where were you when I made all this? Where were you? How is it? That it got lodged into the heart of man that he could talk to God like this. So there's something at work in this man that's not pretty, but Jesus is merciful. He engages us in the midst of our madness and he tries to put us right. That's what he's going to do here with this lawyer. Now, I don't know exactly what it was that the lawyer uh, is, is asking for, what he was hoping to receive by testing Jesus here. But what I do know is that he got way more than he bargained for. I'm going to bring out Three surprising things that Jesus does here in our text. First, he turns the law inside out. Second, he turns the world upside down. And third, he turns our eyes towards him. So first, he turns the law inside out. Again, we'll spend the most of our time here. It sets up the last two. He turns the law inside out. So the lawyer, again, I want you to have a Bible in front of you. I want you to follow. I mean, my outline oftentimes just comes straight from the text. So follow with me. I want you to see it. The lawyer begins his test with a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question to some degree. Um, it's a question people will bring to Jesus on numerous occasions. But here's what's awesome about Jesus' response. Jesus is aware of this man's heart, that he's being tested here. And so Jesus kind of flips the test back on him. I don't know if they still do scantrons, but it's like, it's like this guy hands out the scantron and Jesus just hands it right back to him. No, no, no. I have a question for you. You're the lawyer, right? You read the law. Tell me, what do you think? Right? That's uh, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The tester here is himself put to the test. And it would seem, uh, as you keep reading, on the surface of things at least, that uh, this man passes with flying colors. Man, we've got to give credit where credit is due. The answer he gives is legitimate. Drawing on the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, in particular, like a good lawyer, he sums up the Old Testament revelation of God and the things that are required of man. Two commandments. The two greatest commandments. He answered, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The guy probably just sits back thinking, yes, how about that? 
I mean, even Jesus won't be able to deny that this is correct. Jesus himself, when approached by others, asking, hey, what are the greatest commandments? What do I need to follow? If you were to boil down the, the whole Old Testament law, what would you say? He goes to these two as well. This is Jesus' answer. He gives it, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 to 40, Mark 12, 30 to 31. So certainly he has to concede what he does in verse 28. Namely, he said to him, you have answered correctly. You got it right. But, hold up, the test isn't done. Class is still in session. He says, listen, there's more to knowing God, there's more to walking in His will and His ways than just simply knowledge about Him. Mere knowledge. This knowledge is intended to start to affect your life. Your heart, your hands, your feet, your mouth. So he says, okay, okay, you got the answer right. But let's talk about whether or not you're doing it. Verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Are you doing it? So the image in my mind, um, to help you kind of understand what I think is going on here with Jesus and this man, and now I assume by the Holy Spirit uh, with Jesus and us, uh, the image that I have at least is, I don't know if you've ever been, uh, high school, college, where you kind of have a lecture, and then you have a lab, Right? You have those classes, it's kind of, if I recall, it's, it kind of stinks because you, you, you're putting a ton of hours in and actually not getting that much credit because the labs are always three, four hours, something like that. But that's the idea here where in the lecture hall, in the classroom, you, you learn the principles, you memorize the facts, you read the books, but all of that is intended to kind of come out into practice there in the lab. And if the principles don't make their way into the lab for you, something has misfired, something has broken down. The same is true with God's word, where it's not just about can you recite the Torah? Do you have it memorized? Do you know all the right answers? Jesus now said, okay, let's walk into the lab. Are you doing it? Okay, you can say love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself, but is that in your life? That's really where the heat gets turned up, and that, I think, is why this man fires back quite quickly on Jesus and says, hold up, hold up, hold up. Verse 29, and who is my neighbor? Hmm? Who is my neighbor? So it's this question that's going to set up one of the most well-known and beloved parables in all the Gospels, namely the parable of the Good Samaritan. But before we dive into the parable itself, I want to spend a bit more time with you on this question. Who is my neighbor? I want to kind of sit there for a moment because we're going to see there's some stuff lurking underneath that. Um, 
that really is going to, again, set up where Jesus is going to go. Um, the way to really understand this question is actually to start to look for the motivation beneath it or behind it. And Luke gives that to us there at the beginning of verse 29. I wonder if you caught it on our first read. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, asked the question, and who is my neighbor? In other words, he asks because he's concerned for his own sense of self and righteousness and justification. He feels threatened as Jesus walks him into the lab to talk about how this principle is coming out in his life. The man feels exposed. He feels threatened. He feels like, oh my, is he trying to say that me, a lawyer, is not actually living up to this? Who does he think he is? All right, let's talk. Who is my neighbor? Surely it's not everyone. That would be impossible. No one can love everyone like themselves. But fine, identify the certain vicinity around which I need to kind of love these people. Identify the certain ethnicity, perhaps, that I'm to love as my neighbor. And I bet you'll find, Jesus, that I'm already doing it. Pop the collar. He feels threatened and so desiring to justify himself, he asks, and who is my neighbor? I wonder if you see it. It's a question that's off already from the start. It exposes something off in his heart the moment it leaves his lips. This is the sort of thing that legalism and empty religion always do. It's always looking for lines to determine who is in and who is out, who's right and who's wrong. And in so doing, what it actually does is reduce the wholesale claim that God has on our lives. Namely, that we would love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. There's no boundary line in that. It's just crazy, wild, reckless love for God and overflow to neighbor. And he said, okay, draw that back. Where exactly is the line? Who is my neighbor? If you're looking for lines, you're already on the wrong track according to the gospel. You're trying to justify yourself. Here's the irony in all of this. Um, Even in all this talk about neighbor love and this concern for neighbor, what's really going on in this man's heart is just concern for who? Self. That's the irony in all this. Define for me who my neighbor is. Where is he? What exactly do I have to do? How can all of this is a concern for justifying himself? That's the irony of empty religion. It's even as you may move out to do all sorts of loving things for other people. 
at the end of the day, it's because doing that will in some way serve you. Make you feel a little better about yourself before you go to sleep at night. Make you feel like you are right before God and isn't he so happy and patting you on the back. But there's this idea that we can pursue loving neighbor actually just kind of as this masquerade of love for self. I'm serving you with this hand, but I'm really serving myself with the other. And it's this that starts to come out here in the lawyer's question, I think. Who is my neighbor? So the law is incredibly limited. It's always concerned with lines. Those who are given over to it in legalism are always looking for boundary lines and the limits so that they can know I've made it or I didn't. Uh, You made it or you didn't. They need that desperately to feel good about themselves. But grace, as we'll see, comes in and just obliterates those lines. The gospel comes in and obliterates those lines. Because I know I'm justified in Christ, I don't have to go out and love you to get something for myself. I go and love you because I love you. And God has given me the resources and grace as I draw on his love for me to give that love to others. That's what Jesus is after here The freedom that we can have to not try to find the limits and the boundaries and figure out whether we measure up, but the freedom to dream, to cross boundaries and go. All the possible expressions that neighbor love can take on. Why are we asking, who is my neighbor? How far do I have to go to be okay? It should be the other way around, as we'll see in a moment. But... Jesus is going to kind of speak into this issue in this man's heart, and that's where uh, this parable emerges. It says this, verses 30 to 33. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, stop. This man hearing it, and us hearing this, we should be shocked to the core. That's what Jesus is after. Because what we're supposed to understand is that the priest and the Levite, they should be the people most uh, equipped, most expected to lend a loving hand to this man in need, right? It's a man ravaged by robbers, laid half dead. Here come the priests of, of Israel, the Levites walking down the road, and they walk on by. They turn the face and walk on by these men priests levites like the lawyer knew the law and gave themselves to a meticulous study and keeping of it and if they don't keep it when it comes time to bring it into the lap it's not there like they trumpet 
it is. Priests and Levites are the ones who would serve God in his temple in Jerusalem. And we're not quite sure whether they are. It would seem they're probably leaving uh, Jerusalem at this time. Uh, we're not sure whether they're actually heading to their duties in the temple to serve there before God, or they are coming just having uh, fulfilled their duties in Jerusalem, and now they're walking along this road. Either way, the tragedy, the, 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 the madness, uh, the monstrosity of this is still the same. The idea, in essence, is that though these people who serve God in his temple should be the ones whom we would most expect would serve this broken man along the road. What we come to find out is that these men are the very ones who pass by on the other side. Um, I couldn't help but think of, uh, there's a text in, well, it's quoted in numerous of the Gospels. I think it actually comes from Hosea, but it's where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, listen, I desire mercy, compassion, love, not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means, Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does he mean? That the sacrifices of the Old Testament are, are worthless and pointless? No. But that the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the mercy of God that they represent was meant to make you and I merciful people. So for these priests and these Levites, as they hold the animals day after day in the temple, as they, as they offer them to God, the very thing that symbolizes for us the mercy of God coming to cover our sin, take our brokenness on himself, heal us, Forgive us, wash us, all that stuff in this moment that these guys lived in there in the temple that was intended to change them on the roadside so that they would be merciful to others in the way that God has been merciful to them. The same, as we'll see, is obviously true of us in Christ and all that he has done. So there's this massive disconnect. And Jesus is trying to draw it out. Now, no doubt these men, this priest, this Levite in the story, justified their actions. No doubt. They couldn't live with themselves if they didn't somehow in their own mind justify themselves. So maybe they said, hey, I got to get home. My family really needs me. Or if they were headed to the temple, I got to get to my duties. Who am I to neglect God in his temple? Or maybe they threw out that chapter in Leviticus that talks about, hey, I'm not sure if this man is, is dead or not. Our text says he was half dead. He's probably just laying there. If he is dead, then I'm ceremonially unclean. That's going to be this whole ordeal. I don't want to go through that. That wouldn't be right. God wouldn't want that for me. So I'll just pass by as far away from this brother as I can. And maybe that helped them to sleep well at night. Maybe that made them feel justified in their own eyes, but it certainly did not please the one who says, listen, love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. If that's you laying there, what are you wanting then? So you can have all the knowledge 
and none of the life. You can have all of the law and none of the love. That's the tragedy. In this parable, with this lawyer, God forbid, with some of us. You know all the things, you know all the stuff. Your lips declare his name, but like Jesus said, your hearts are far. Something else going on in there. Justify yourself before man. The parable doesn't end here though, right? It actually gets even more jarring, more shocking for this lawyer as we proceed. It's what's so awesome about the way that Jesus answers his question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus is, is brilliant. He's God. You'd expect that, I suppose. Down the road walks a Samaritan, a half-breed, a sellout, a lowlife as far as the Jews would see them. Samaritans, if you recall, have been intermarrying with Gentiles since the exile. When I think it was the king of Assyria who brought in foreign nations and into foreign peoples into that land, and they started marrying with the Jews who remained there in Samaria. And they started kind of syncretizing their, their religions, bringing together kind of a mixture of, of Jewish stuff and also kind of whatever they brought in. So there was this intermarrying since the exile with Samaritans. That's why the half-breed idea comes into play. But they also had their own version of the Old Testament, in particular uh, the Torah and other things. But then they also had, if you remember Jesus with the woman at the well, uh, uh, their own temple, Mount Gerizim, where they, they did their own thing and thought they were the legit ones. It sounds a little bit eerily too much like modern-day evangelical Protestantism, but we got the way, you don't. And they would have been enemies with one another. So a Samaritan is the last one that this Jewish lawyer would be willing to see as exemplary. And yet, the Samaritan is the protagonist in our story. He is the one that Jesus holds out and says, listen, all of you, learn from him. This man gets it right. Whatever his ethnicity or religious background may be. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, I wonder if you noticed, there is no calculation. There are no boundary lines in this man's love. I mean, by earthly understanding, this is just one major loss for this man. Think of it with me. He gives up perhaps his security by approaching a man who's clearly just been robbed and beaten. You don't know if the robbers are still nearby or not. Have you ever been in that situation where you kind of see something going on and some guy's in a fight or something's happening? You're kind of like, if I step in, is he going to swing at me? 
So there's some risk involved in moving towards in those moments. He's giving up his own security, his own little bubble to move into this man's pain. He gives up his comfort. I I wonder if you noticed that. This is an amazing little detail. I don't know how far he had to travel to get to this inn, but we know this. He set the man, this this half-dead man, on his animal, the animal that he would have been sitting on before coming down the road. Now it looks like I'm walking and you're riding. This... Clearly, you need it more than I do. He gives up his comfort. He gives up, obviously, this one's on the surface of the text, his money. He gives up his money. Um, Don't be mistaken when you hear two denarii. You're prone to think, oh, that's two of anything doesn't sound like much. Denarii was a day's wages for the common worker at this time and it's estimated that two denarii given to this innkeeper would have paid for up to about a month of this man's stay and his needs so this is not like hey i'll put you up for the night bro this is like you're gonna you're gonna get better in this place and you know what he says If, if it turns out you need even more I'm going to come back later on my way through and I'll make sure I settle the accounts. So he's giving up his money. He's giving up his stuff in the cause of love. Neighbor love. He gives up his time. This is a big one for me. This is what stops me a lot of times, guys, from neighbor love. It's time. I mean, think about it. So he clearly has previous engagements. That's why he doesn't stay with this man. But instead, he leaves him and says, hey, I got to go. But when I come back, I'll make sure I settle. But I got to go. In other words, I have previous engagements. And this whole thing would have slown him or slown him down. Sloan? (laughs) That's why I stumbled on that. Sloan. Yeah, we're going to add that one to the English dictionary. You can do that these days. Uh, anyways, slowed him down. And I, I think about myself sometimes. It's like, man, yeah, I'm too busy. Anyone else feel like that in Silicon Valley? I'm too busy for loving my neighbor. And the knock on the door is too often a nuisance rather than an opportunity for gospel witness and neighbor love. But he gives up his time. Love this man as I would want to be loving myself. Are you kidding me? The answer is clear. Perhaps he even gives up his reputation. What I mean by this is we're not told the ethnicity of this man laying on the side of the road. But I think it's safe to assume he's probably a Jew here um, that was traveling and that got beat up. And so here's the reality. Jews were at enmity with Samaritans. Samaritans. And so the same idea moves in the opposite, right? Just like the Jew would not want to see the Samaritan as the protagonist, well, the Samaritan might be prone to look at a Jew on the side of the road and go, serves you right, man. You worship the true God, you'd be all right. But here's what you get for going up there to Jerusalem the way that you are. 
And for this man to move into perhaps his enemy's life and love him like this, and for other perhaps Samaritans to see him do his, his reputation, his image, it'd be shot. What are you doing hanging out? You remember when Jesus hangs out with the Samaritan woman, the, the disciples come back and go, what are you doing talking to her? Don't do that. She's a Samaritan. Not to mention the fact that she's a woman, which is a whole other bias in, in that day. But nonetheless, he is compelled, verse 33, by compassion. Compassion compels him, moves him towards. So then Jesus comes out of this parable with a question for the lawyer there in verse 36. And this is important. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He asks, which of these three men, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, just like Jesus took the first question in this test and turned it back on his, uh, his tester, this lawyer, so Jesus does again with this second question. Only now, it's, it, 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 it's as if he kind of reframes the question entirely. I wonder if you notice that there's a new spin on the lawyer's question by the time Jesus is done in this parable. He comes out, well, I should say, it begins with, hey, who is my neighbor? But the question that Jesus leaves lingering in this man's mind by the end of the parable is not who is my neighbor, but are you, brother, a neighbor? He kind of takes uh, neighbor as uh, a, a noun, if you will, uh, just a person out there, and he turns it into a verb and says, are you neighboring? Forget defining the line of who and what you're supposed to love and the people out there somewhere. And start asking, man, am I acting that out? Am I proving myself to be a neighbor to whoever I pass by? That is the question. He reframes the whole discussion. I wonder if you see the difference here. If you're falling asleep, listen up. Just give me a moment of your time. The former, the first question, the question from this lawyer's lips essentially asks this, how much do I have to do? Define for me the bare minimum and I'll see if I can do it so I can feel good about myself justified. How much do I have to do? I've got to go to church. Okay. Got to put in 10%. Okay. Got to meet with a few Christians, even though I don't really like them from time to time. Okay, got to share the gospel. All right, I can hand out a few tracts here or there. I'll feel good about myself. How much do I have to do? Tell me, I'll do it. But then by the end, the question Jesus wants us asking, the question that should be in our hearts, is not how much do I have to do, but how much can I do? It's like this open-ended idea. The one question is looking for lines So we can justify ourselves. The second question, how much can I do? Is willing, is is daring to dream. It emerges from the heart of one who has tasted the love of God, who freely justifies us by his grace. The blood of his son. 
Someone who gets grace like that is no longer saying, how much do I have to do to feel all right? They know they're already all right because of what Jesus did. We're not looking to measure up because we know he measured up for us. So instead we go, how much can I do? And we dare to dream about all the expressions that neighbor love could take on in our lives. It's not just this static noun out there anymore that we seek to define, but it's instead a verb. I am moved. I am compelled to be a neighbor. Isn't that awesome? Perhaps not quite as awesome yet. Let me, let me take us a few more places. Don't worry again. I told you first one was the biggest. Now we're going to move in earnest here, through the last two. So Jesus is not only turning the law inside out here, which I wonder if you know what I mean by that. Uh, He's saying, listen, you, you want to keep the law externally. I'm saying it needs to be on your heart, so it starts coming out. That's what Jesus has come to do. Turn the law inside out. But he's done more than that in this text here with this brother and with us, I hope. He's turned the world upside down. Um, clear evidence of this is kind of found in the way this guy answers Jesus' question at the end here. The answer is, is clear to us all. When, 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 when Jesus asks, hey, listen, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The answer is the Samaritan. Of course, there's no, there's no way he could answer any, anything else. But I wonder if you noticed, it's as if this, this man cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan. <laughs> he can't, it's like that word is just, just kind of chokes in his throat on the way out. I, he can't say it. Instead, he, 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 he will admit at least this. Well, it's the one who showed him mercy. Verse 37. But here's the idea. This man's self-righteous world has been thrown upside down. It's just been turned on its head. The Samaritan is the last person he would want to see as as exemplary, and yet here he is having to say, well, I suppose it's the one who showed him mercy, the Samaritan. I've been defining myself over and against others and feeling good and self-justified by looking at men like the Samaritans. And now I have to say, you know what? I guess the Samaritan is better than the dudes who roll with me, like the priests and the Levites. In your story, at least. I wonder if you see it. Jesus is not turning this man's world upside down to shame him. He's not turning this man's world upside down to mock him. He's not turning this man's world upside down to condemn him. He's actually turning this man's world upside down to invite him into another world. To invite him out of a world of self-righteousness, self-justification, legalism, where lines are everywhere. And invite him into a world of grace where you are compelled by compassion because you know one who has come down compelled by compassion to you. The point of this parable is not, hear me on this, that Samaritans are better than Jews. That's not the point. That would just set out the the same structure that Jesus is trying to obliterate. 
The point is that the grace of God can do anything with anyone. That's the point of choosing the Samaritan. That it's not your ethnicity, your, your religious background, your past or present, your good or bad deeds that qualifies you or not. If the grace of God gets in the mix, that's the decisive factor, no matter who you are. And so Jesus is trying to open this man up to his, his, his need for grace. To show him, listen, you're not, it's not what you think. You have all these little lines and you reduce the claim of God in your heart. God wants you to be madly in love with Him and to dream about how you can move out in love for neighbor. And the only way you get there is if you get grace. And sometimes it seems the religious folk are the least likely to want that because they feel good. The Samaritans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they don't feel so good. So grace comes to go, yes! He's trying to turn this man's world upside down to invite him into another. A world of grace. Finally, he turns our eyes toward him. Here's where I think Jesus at the end is really turning um, all of our eyes toward himself. The accent in this parable is not meant to be on the goodness of the Samaritan. But rather, the accent is meant to be on the greatness of our Savior. That's why I titled this message the way that I did. Um, If you see it on your hand out there, the Good Samaritan and his greater Savior. Was the Samaritan good? Sure. Yes. But if all we do is say, look at him and now go and, 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 and follow in his example, we are in big trouble. We're not getting what Jesus is doing. Yes, does Jesus come out and say, hey, listen, man, go and do likewise. Yes, he does. But what's he trying to do? He just basically obliterated this man's boundaries and said, you are going to have to do a miracle in your heart if you're ever going to fulfill this command and actually inherit eternal life. But you know what? It's the same sort of thing that happens with the rich young ruler. Do you remember this? When Jesus says, okay, what one thing do you have left to do if you want to inherit eternal life? Go and sell everything that you have. And then afterwards, the guy goes away sad. The disciples are talking to go, Jesus, who in the world can be saved if this is the way that it works? And he goes, listen, with man, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, I'm trying to open that brother up to the reality of grace. I'm trying to get him to turn his eyes away from himself to the reality. I can't fulfill the law. I can't do this. I mean, I want to. I want to start moving in it, but I can't. Do I need help from outside, turning eyes toward himself. That's what he is doing here. It is only when a person is brought to experience the grace of Christ that this whole legalistic self-justification thing can be broken. The only way we're ever truly going to love our neighbor as ourselves is if we experience the love of God for us. That's what John says so clearly, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So at the close of this parable, and this is really where it will end, it is not the Samaritan that we ought to see, but the Samaritan's greater Savior. The Samaritan is good at every point. 
But the Samaritan Savior is greater still. Think of it with me. So we are, brothers and sisters, we are uh, in our sin, uh, devil ravaged and lying uh, dead there on the side of the road. And Jesus, in compassion, moves towards us. We are enemies at enmity with God, hating him, Romans 1.30 says. Jesus, in compassion, moves towards us. And he's going to one-up the Samaritan on every point. He doesn't just bind up our wounds like this man does. He bears them. I mean, when he takes our wounds, he, he takes them to the cross and he bears them in his own body. And he doesn't just pour out oil and wine to, uh, to help us and maybe clean things in us. He pours out his blood and his spirit. This is how we get justified, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. I mean, enough with the self-justifying structures that we create, as if somehow we could pay God back. That's like trying to take care of a multi-billion dollar debt with pocket change. Enough with it, right? It's his blood that justifies us by grace, freely on the cross. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't just set us on his animal's back and walk alongside. No, he takes us up on his own back and he carries us. And he doesn't just take us to some stranger's inn on the side of the road. He takes us to his father's house. Where he says he goes to prepare a place for us. And there are many mansions or homes in heaven. We will be with him. And he doesn't just give us a couple days wages. And then perhaps a little bit more later. No, the Bible says he shares with us his very inheritance. All that he has is shared with us in glory. He gives us everything. Good Samaritan, greater Savior. I mean, think about it. Technically speaking, Jesus was the furthest thing from a neighbor to us as you can get. Right? You're going to try to define neighbor by vicinity, by ethnicity, furthest thing away from neighbor that you can get. He's in heaven with his Father in glory. No human nature here, just one with the Father. And yet, God looks down on our plight with compassion. Jesus takes on flesh and he, 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 he takes on a zip code, an area code, an address, if you will. He takes up residence in our grimy little neighborhoods and he sets up his house next door. He becomes a neighbor. He moves in. He makes neighbor a verb when he comes towards the sinful people of this world like you and I. This is the sort of thing when you get it that just kind of sets dynamite to the legalistic structures in our heart. 
This is the sort of thing that just does away with legalism. This is the sort of thing that obliterates the boundaries and sets you free to love neighbors, sets you free to to move out and go and do likewise, like Jesus would say here. This is the sort of thing that, that this is how we inherit eternal life. It's a gift of God, of grace, to people that don't deserve it, people lying on the side of the road, half dead, that he is loved, revived, regenerated. And then he sets us out to go do the same for others in his name. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your mercy. We rejoice that while the Samaritan is good, our Savior is greater still. We rejoice that we know your love. That you open our hearts up to it. God, we confess even now the places that we hold back, the places that we look for lines, the places that we try to justify ourselves. God, we confess. And we invite you even in this place to come and neighbor up with us again. Come and love on sinful people in need. Show us what your blood accomplished. Freely justified. And set us us on a mission. Help us dare to dream how we can love you and neighbor. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen.